0: Great, if you could have a copy of God's Word open at John chapter 4, or your order of service sheet open before you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in the name of our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Every one of us want it, yet it's so elusive. We try and find it everywhere, anywhere, be it in careers and relationships and money and possessions. We search for it in all these places and yet we struggle to find it. I'm talking of satisfaction, of course. All of us, whether we're aware of it or not, are on an undeniable search for satisfaction in this life. And the problem is, we just can't find it. I don't know if there's any Rolling Stones fans in the congregation, but next month they're playing at Hyde Park. I don't know if you've got tickets for the gig. I was chatting to a man in the local area, and he told me he has two tickets, and he cannot wait. But you remember their famous hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? They confess that satisfaction is one of the most elusive realities. It's hardly surprising that this was a huge hit because this song is filled with raw honesty. The raw honesty of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And when you stand back and think about these men with their limitless wealth, fame, pleasure, power, we might ask ourselves the question, Is there any hope for us to find satisfaction in this life? Well Mick Jagger and Keith Richards might say no. But the Apostle John says yes. In the passage before us this morning Jesus meets a woman at the well. A woman who was deeply unsatisfied who was looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And in this passage, she will find, in our encounter with Jesus, her soul satisfied. Before we dive in to look at this passage in detail, it's worth highlighting two things. First thing, this is the single longest recorded conversation Jesus ever had with an individual in the gospel. For that reason, this is a noteworthy conversation. The second reason it's a noteworthy conversation is because it quickly follows on the heels from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus back in chapter 3. And it's like John, the author, has these two conversations placed right next to each other because he wants us to see how these two individuals stand in stark contrast. Nicodemus, we know his name. This woman... He's nameless. Nicodemus was a Jewish man. This woman was a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, highly educated. This woman most likely had no education. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning he was. Scrupulous in his adherence to the law of God. He was morally upright. This woman was an adulterer. She lived a life in contradiction to the law of God. She was immoral. Nicodemus was a somebody. She was a nobody. Nicodemus sought out Jesus because he saw something significant in him. He was sent from God. This woman had to be sought out by Jesus Because to her, he was a stranger at a well. Nicodemus met Jesus at night in the darkness. This woman met Jesus in the middle of the day in the glorious Middle Eastern light. You see how Nicodemus and this woman are polar opposites. John wants you to see... How they stand in stark contrast to one another. But you know his point is they both have much in common. They both needed Jesus. You might be orthodox outwardly, unorthodox inwardly, you need Jesus. You might be a somebody or you might be a nobody. You need Jesus. You might be moral, immoral. You need Jesus. But that's not the only thing they had in common. The second thing they had in common was this. Jesus loved them both. Jesus loved them both. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So in this passage, we're going to see Jesus' love for this woman. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, as we work our way through this passage, let me tell you where we're going. Verses 1 through 6 really set the scene for us. And then we'll spend most of our time in verses 7 through 30, where we get to eavesdrop on their conversation but there's two big ideas. True satisfaction and true worship. True satisfaction and true worship. Okay, let's set up this scene. Verses 1 through 3, read them with me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again again. For Galilee. Here we discover why Jesus left the Judean countryside and headed north to Galilee. Simple answer, he did so in order to avoid conflict and confrontation with the Pharisees. The backdrop is that the second half of John chapter 3, John the disciples, uh, John the Baptist's disciples have become aware of Jesus's growing popularity. And remember what we looked at last Sunday evening, They were jealous. Now, the Pharisees learn of Jesus' growing popularity. Implicitly, they were growing jealous of Jesus. And Jesus' hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for conflict or confrontation with the Pharisees, and so Jesus headed north. So that's why Jesus headed north, but next we see The way he traveled north. Verse 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, it's quite hard, but just imagine a, a map of Israel with me for a moment. In the south of Israel, a part of it, you have Judea. In the middle of Israel, you had the region called Samaria. And then in the north of Israel, you had Galilee. Now, a first century Jewish reader of John's gospel reading these words would not make sense of it. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Not if you were a pious Jew. You would do everything to circumvent going through Samaria. You would go, you would take a day's extra journey to go round Samaria. Why? Because the Samaritans were the Jews' bitter enemies. I won't give you the history lesson, but let me say it like this: Back in the day, the Samaritans were Jews. There had been an exile and then a captivity. And This group of people started to marry, these Jews started to marry Gentiles. In other words, mixed marriages. And added to that, they became half Jews, half Gentile, but then they intermingled their Jewish religion with pagan religion. So in the end, they had a mixed up faith. As a result, the Jews despised them, hated them, bitter opponents of them. They would do everything to avoid a Samaritan like the plague. So when we read here that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's a bit shocking. It's not out of geographic necessity. It is out of divine necessity. John likes to use this word must had. The son of man must be lifted up. Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is because Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman at the well. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus has a divine appointment to meet people here this morning, like the woman at the well who have thirsty souls. Next, we read where and when Jesus met this woman. In verse four, we read that. Verse five, we read it. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, we read, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So, so he's in this little town of Samaria, and its great claim to fame is that there's a field that was once owned by the great patriarch Jacob, you know, the father of the, the twelve tribes. And the great claim to fame in the field was there was the well that Jacob dug. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, you can go see that well. And Jesus found himself wearied, tired, sitting beside this well. This is where he will encounter this woman. By the way, we we know from John chapter 1 who Jesus is. He is the word became flesh. And here we see him in all his humanity. He is weary. Let that sink in. He was weary. Because the journey he made was to seek and save this woman. More about that near the end. So that's where he met her. But when did he meet her? Well, we're told it was the sixth hour. That means midday. That means noon. That means in the scorching, blistering heat of the Middle Eastern sun. Now, the the scholars instantly tell us that it's strange that a woman would be at the well at this time of day because you would normally go either early in the morning or early in the evening when it was a lot cooler. Why was she there at this time of day? Well, because, as we're going to learn, she lived an immoral life, and the women in the town would not want to associate with a woman like this. And so that's how John sets up this scene. We know where Jesus is. We now know where he's going to meet this woman. So the scene is set for Jesus's conversation with this woman. Now let's eavesdrop on their conversation. Verses seven through thirty. Verse seven says, "A woman." from Samaria, came to draw water. I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. Picture a woman walking with her water jug out of her town and through a field to the well. Picture the shock in her face because she's come on her own as she spots someone sitting beside the well. The one sitting beside the well says to her, Give me a drink. In our English, that sounds, it just sounds without the the sort of the the kindness, but it's really, please give me a drink. And interestingly, John adds this little detail, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy buy food. This woman came to Jesus on her own. By the way, Jesus was on his own. This is a one-to-one conversation. Jesus' disciples have gone in to to the the city looking for the local Tesco Express, looking to buy food for a picnic at the well. Now, as we read this, we we don't, in the 21st century, get the immediate shock that a first-century reader would get reading this. There's so much shock, scandal, and surprise in what we've just read. Jesus, a Jew, a man initiates a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Add to that his request. Give me a drink. Now, the biggest problem that Jews had with mixing with people who were Gentiles or mixed was that they would make them unclean. Jesus is saying, give me a drink, is saying, let me drink from your water jug, the same jug you drink from. This is scandalous. This is shocking. Now, we might not feel the shock. She felt the shock. Look at her response. How is it, verse 9, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John just adds, for the benefit of us, the Jews had no dealings with Samaria. They were bitter enemies. And here is Jesus. Instead of seeing the barriers, the social boundaries, he's building bridges. As we stare at Jesus here, we need to see something about his heart. He, he loves this woman. And he won't let Religious tradition, religious sensibilities, and customs getting the way of him, the seeking Savior who set his sight upon the Samaritan woman, get in the way. Heads up, we should never let tradition, culture, sensibilities ever get in the way of the proclamation of the gospel. Now Jesus continues with the conversation, and and if this has all been somewhat shocking, it now gets somewhat strange. This is what's just happened. She's come to him, he's asked her, give me a drink. Now read this verse. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. But he's just asked her for water. It's strange, isn't it? And this happens again and again. But the thing is, we know who Jesus is. The Word, who was in the beginning, who was with God, who is God. The source of life, the light of the world the one full of grace and truth, the one sent by the Father to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. Jesus said to this woman, listen, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would be asking me for water, for living water. Now, now, in John's gospel, this has happened in in the conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus says one thing, and they don't get it, and so they hear another thing. So, so Jesus often has these conversations, and they just like, they just go over people's heads. It's, Jesus is operating on a spiritual level, and people are operating on an earthly level. So, this woman whose, 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 whose whole thinking is rooted and grounded in this physical world of wells and buckets, she says to Jesus, but sir, you don't have a bucket. And the well is very deep. And she goes on, and she says to him, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know what she's saying to Jesus? "You Are you so arrogant that you think you're greater than Jacob? The great father, not just of the Samaritans, but of the Jews. Jesus is not arrogant. He's actually been really humble. She doesn't know who he is yet. Now, Jesus continuing to use this, this the water here really is a metaphor, is an analogy for this woman's life. Look at what he says in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water, this H2O, that from this well will be thirsty again. That's the story of her life. Every day she's got the daily drudgery of coming to this well to get water to drink because she's thirsty every day. Now we don't perhaps, the way we relate to water today in the West is is so different in the sense that if you live in a hot, arid climate, we know we need water to live. It's absolutely essential to life. They needed water. They would be gasping for water, thirsty, needing the quench for their thirst. We have the privilege of just running our taps and having water on hand everywhere, anywhere. But Jesus then heightens his, his, his analogy and he says to her, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying this, I've got something for you that is as basic and as necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically. And what does Jesus have? He is living water, the gift of God. We'll study more of this in John chapter 7, but let's just, let's just go with what we've got in the text. Jesus says to her, I've got what will satisfy you, that will mean that you're never thirsty again now what's interesting is this woman she's one, blind to who Jesus is because he's greater than her father Jacob but in some ways she's deaf to what Jesus is saying because she's deaf because she's only operating on this physical level and you know the reality is for many of us that might be the problem we're blind to who Jesus is and we're deaf to what Jesus is saying. You know, some of us don't realize that, do you know that your soul is thirsty? Do you know that, that your life is a, is a search to quench your th- soul's thirst? People can go through living life without ever admitting to themselves they, deep down, are really thirsty. And they're going searching for it, searching some way to to quench it. They cannot find it, but they never admit it. You know, it, it does strike me that some of the people who come to admit that their soul's thirsty are those who have it all. Mick Jagger. Like, literally, they they were at the height. This hit single came out, and these men were on the front page of every magazine. They were were the rock stars of the world. Wealth, women, fame. They had it all, but they wrote the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Boris Becker, in the news, because he's landed himself in prison. Six-time Grand Slam champion. He's that famous quote. I'd won Wimbledon twice before. As the youngest player, I was rich. and all the material possessions I needed. And yet, it's the old song of the movie stars and the pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they're so unhappy. I had no inner peace. He got to the top and he found that there was nothing. Some of us go looking for our satisfaction and all the things that these people have we're on this continual journey back and forth, the daily drudgery of, of trying to find it, but it's not there. Now back to the passage, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here's the reality. See the human level, the physical level? None of us like going through the daily drudgery of life. You know, the repetition, doing the same things, getting the same results. All of us want change, life transforming change. This woman wanted an end to the daily drudgery of coming to the well. She wanted water that would quench her thirst. So what jesus does next is absolutely beautiful he exposes her to our soul's thirst because he loves her and he's so gentle and he's so kind he's like a spiritual physician who's about to take the scalpel and he's going to make an incision And he's going to expose the raw nerve of her soul. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. This woman's now face to face with herself. Jesus wants to get personal. And she dodges the question, but do you know what's fascinating? In this long conversation, these are her fewest words. I have no husband. She doesn't want to get personal. She wants just to move on quickly from this. But Jesus now, like the the brilliant physician... He's now going to expose her to her spiritual sickness and her spiritual dehydration. You are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman's been married five times. The soundtrack of her life is this. I can't get no satisfaction. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. But I still can't get no satisfaction. She now has a living lover. And, and no doubt she's, she's on her way to her sixth marriage. And, and, and by the way, in modern London, if, if someone said to you, I'm on my sixth marriage, that would be shocking. In some ways. Like, Six marriages? This woman's been looking for her sole satisfaction in relationships, in men, in sex. This woman has been searching for satisfaction, but she can't find it. She's trying, she's trying, she's trying, but she can't get no satisfaction. The reason she's here on her own at midday and noon is because the woman in the village have shunned her. Her five previous broken relationships. Now she's living in immorality with another man. So you've got her past sinfulness and you've got her present sinfulness. She wants to find her satisfaction in a relationship. Maybe if Jesus was to take his spiritual scalpel and examine your soul and my soul. Would he expose the same thing? With some of us in this church, are, are we, are we searching for, longing for our soul satisfaction in a relationship? If you're single, maybe your fantasies, maybe your lust, they all center on a person or multiple people. Maybe if you're married, maybe you've made your spouse the, the, the perfect relationship, in fact the reason you're so disappointed in your marriage is because I've never lived up to the expectation. Because by the way, they can't bear the weight of the relationship that you've dreamt of. The reality for all people is we were made to have a relationship with God. That is the only perfect relationship that satisfies. And if you go looking for it here, in people, you'll not find it. You'll just be thirsty. You'll just be like the woman who goes to the well on a daily basis. The drudgery of life. Now, now, now other people we, we go looking for soul satisfaction in our careers. We want to get promotion, we wanna we wanna find fulfillment in our wealth, in our possessions, in our reputation. And you know what's really tragic is many of these things they're good things. But you know what our problem is? We turn good things into God things and they can't give us what we want. They can't satisfy us because we weren't ultimately made for them. We were made for relationship with Jesus. You know, if I was to diagnose the real problem of this woman, it's Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. She's committed two great evils. She's forsaken her God, the fountain of living waters, and she has hewed, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The men couldn't hold her water. And you know what is amazing about Jesus is though he's just exposed this to her. And Jesus' purpose in highlighting this isn't not to condemn or it's not to be cruel, it's been ever so kind. He's bringing her to see her need for Himself. And Jesus wants to bring you and I to the place where we see our need for Himself. That means you and I need to come face to face with self. That means you and I need to face up to this question, what is it that your soul is thirsty for? Where is it that you're going looking for your soul satisfaction? The true satisfaction is Jesus, who can give you the gift of God, the living waters. Now, now, now what happens next is fascinating because this woman wants to dodge the, the personal question. She wants to move this conversation on. And so the woman said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship now do you know what happens and and, and if you're ever having a gospel conversation if you're a christian with a friend and things get personal don't be surprised if they want to move it away from the personal because sometimes it's hard when someone has to face up to themselves and so do you know what she wants to do she wants to debate theology because he's a prophet right Now now just think about this, right? And and, and this is another fascinating revelation to people. I have sometimes my most religious conversations, not with Christians, but non Christians. They always want to talk religion. I was just with a guy the other morning there, and we're chatting about Christian for ages on end. But I don't think he's a Christian. Now now here's here's the ironic thing. She's living with a live in lover, and now she wants to talk to Jesus about where's the right place to worship. Don't be surprised when your non-christian friends want to have a spiritual conversation. But do know that sometimes that's just to deflect and avoid the heart of the matter, which is the matter of their heart. Now, she says to Jesus, like, so we worship on Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, they're in Sychar. Mount Gerizim's right there at the base of it. That's where the Samaritan Holy Temple was. You guys worship over in Jerusalem in your Holy Temple. Where's the right one? Jesus now is going to expose to her, you know, your great problem was that you didn't, you don't have satisfaction. Now your great problem is that you are a false worshiper. Do you see that? He says to her, in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. You know what she doesn't know? Do you know what she worships? Men. Relationship. That's what she worships because when you turn a good thing into a God thing, it becomes an idol and you worship it. But you know, here's the thing. Jesus says, but the hour is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus says, by the way, the hour is coming. It's now come. He is the reason this is all going to change. When he dies on the cross, the curtain temple is going to be rented to. Access to God's presence everywhere, anywhere. It doesn't matter the place, but it matters the person. God is spirit and we worship him through Christ. We have access because of what Christ has done. And so Jesus says, listen, God's seeking true worshipers. Now this is beautiful because you, you can't miss this. The false worshiper becomes a true worshiper. The woman is, is really <laughs> crumbling under the penetrating power of Jesus' argument. And she, she's got her la, here's her last-ditch attempt, right, to try and shift this conversation. Right, let's end it. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus, come on, come on, let's just end this conversation. The Messiah's going to come. He'll tell us what's right. Remember I said she was blind? Remember I said she was deaf? Now, think about this one. In John's gospel, the first time Jesus verbally declares to someone who he is, is a Samaritan, and it's a woman, and we don't even know her name. I, who speak to you, am he. Jesus brought her face to face with herself and now Jesus brings her face to face with the Savior who satisfies her soul. And I imagine that there, there was a stunned silence when she heard Jesus say these words. She's been talking, 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 trying to dodge, dodge, dodge. Now he says, I am He. I'm the long awaited, long anticipated I am. And the revelation of God. Now, it's so anticlimactic because verse 27 says, and Jesus' disciples returned. And you kind of just want to know what happened. They walk in and look what it says. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? But notice what happens in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. That's hugely significant. That's a symbol of our old life. She left it. Why? Because her life's been changed. And you know what she went and did? She went away into the town and said to the people, Come! Everybody come, come, come. Now remember, this is a woman that nobody wants to associate with. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And really, the this, this statement she's making is because she, she, she's, she's starting to see. He is the Christ. The false worshiper becomes the true worshiper. This is the sort of people the father seeks. The immoral. The unorthodox. The one who looked for satisfaction in relationships and sex. This is the one the father seeks who he transforms and changes into true worshippers, who he gives true satisfaction to. Now, as I wrap this up, listen. It was quite something to see Jesus sitting at a well weary, tired. It was quite something to hear Jesus say to a woman, please can I have a drink? But in John chapter 19, Jesus says, as he hangs on the cross, and by the way, it was noon, it was 12 o'clock, and it wasn't light, it was all dark. Jesus says these words on the cross, I thirst. And why did Jesus say, I thirst? Why did he cry out, I thirst? Because the weary one was the sin-bearing, curse-bearing saviour of the world. He cried out, First, so that all people might cry out to him for living waters that will satisfy. And by the way, John, who wrote Revelation, gives us the last word, the final word of the Bible. Do you know the last command in the Bible? Do you know the last command in the Bible? The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. We will be satisfied forever, fully, permanently, if we come and we drink and we receive the gift of God offered in Christ. He thirsts so that you and I eternally don't have to he thirst and died so that you and I could have eternal life and if you're here and you're a non-christian you need to come to the fountains of living water and drink and if you're here and you're a christian you need to come to the fountains of living water and drink afresh because if pro- the reality is is we're all weary and the reality is is that we're we're, we're even as saints we can we can still sin and our problem is, is that so often, instead of enjoying the fountains of living waters, we commit evil, we, we we forsake them, and we try and find cisterns. And Jesus says, "Come." And you know, one day when he when the when the bride and the Spirit will say, "Come," we'll never look anywhere else. He will perfectly, permanently satisfy our souls. Forever. Let's come and pray. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. And God, you know each one of us through and through. You know what it is that we are thirsty after. The thing, the, the, the fountains that we make to, to try and drink from, they just leave us more thirsty. God, we pray that you would lead us to Jesus, the fountain of the living water. The one who offers us the gift of God. The one who alone can satisfy our souls. Have mercy upon us when we, your people, forsake the fountain of living waters to indulge in the fleeting, empty pleasures of this world. But we long for that day when all things will be brought to their final consummation and we will drink and we will be permanently satisfied. We pray this in your precious and powerful name. Amen.